Well, good morning, Christ City. Welcome to uh, our series in Lamentations as we jump into chapter 4. And as we begin, actually, we're going to look not at chapter 4 in Lamentations right away, but at chapter 12 in the book of Hebrews. I wanted to read you this. Verses 5 to 6 and verse 9. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And then verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? See, in this text, the author of Hebrew tells us as he reflects not just on the New Testament, but actually on the whole of the Bible, he tells us that discipline is for our good. Discipline is something that God uses to draw us out of death and into life. I want to keep that in mind because this morning as we turn to the book of Lamentations, we're going to see the way that God's people lamented the destruction of Jerusalem, but that in their lament, as we'll see today, that you can see God's discipline at work. That God was a God working to remove, even through this punishment, the idols from his people. The idols that they had placed their hope in, but that would never lead them to life and would only lead to more death. This morning, we're going to continue our series in the book of Lamentations. And as we look at chapter 4, we'll have three simple points. First, we're going to look at Jerusalem's idols. Second, we'll consider our idols. And then third, we'll look at a reason for hope. So turn to chapter 4 with me as we consider our first point. Chapter 4, as, as we've read it, we already have heard its, its heaviness this morning. It's full of these gripping descriptions of a reversal of fortune for God's people, from a state of, uh, of prosperity and blessing to a state of punishment and uh, crushing defeat under Babylon. And in this, God was at work disciplining his people and putting an end to their idolatry. Idolatry is kind of a, a funny word. It's not one that we're used to talking about, probably a lot of us. And it, it might be asked, what is an idolatry? What is this thing we're talking about? Well, idolatry is this. It is the worship of an idol. It is the worship of a false god. And Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he helpfully defines idolatry for us this way. So listen to, to this uh, description as I read it. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. Now, what is it that only God can give us? Well, in a world of sin and death and suffering that's here because of our own human sin, the thing that only God can give us is life. The thing that only God can give us is true, abundant, and flourishing, and everlasting life in relationship with Him. When we think about the book of Lamentations, we realize that though God had called His people into a special relationship of love and of life with Him, and though he had given them commandments and rules in his law that would lead them into the living in this world that he's created in a way that was for their good and that would lead to their flourishing, and though God had blessed his people again and again and again, 
they continued to turn away from him. They continued to turn away from him, the giver of life, to various idols looking for life and for meaning and for blessing and for purpose in those things and things that could never give it. Now, what were those idols? Well, let's look now at chapter 4, and I'm going to show you three of them. The first idol we see in chapter 4 is simply affluence. It's, it's affluence, the wealth and the prosperity of the people. Because prior to the exile in Jerusalem, it was in fact a prosperous and a wealthy city. The people within its laws, they lived in luxury. They lived in this place where the temple uh, rose over the city in its grandeur, in its precious metals and jewels and its architecture. They lived in a place where the palaces were the height of architecture that existed at that time in human history. There was aesthetic creativity and beauty all throughout the city. It was a statement. It was easy to be proud of the glory of Jerusalem. For the Jewish people of that day, to go to Jerusalem was like you or I going to New York or going to Paris or going to Dubai or going to London and seeing the the architecture and the buildings and being overwhelmed and amazed by the grandeur and the beauty of these places. But what happened was this. The people began looking to the glory of their wealth and of their culture and of their beauty to give them the flourishing life that only God could give. And so God disciplined them by removing their idols. Look at chapter 4, verse 1, verse 5, and verses 7 to 8. I'll read them for you now. The author laments, he says, how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple, and of course purple uh, in the ancient culture was the cloth of royalty and prosperity. Those who were brought up wearing purple embrace ash heaps. Verse 7, her princes were more pure than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Their royalty, their celebrities, their leadership, their beauty, it has all fallen from the great height. And those who place confidence in wealth and beauty were humbled to the ground. The second idol, though, that we see in chapter 4 is this. We see that the way that, that Israel made an idol out of the leaders that God had given them. See, the structure of Israel's leadership, it wasn't something their philosophers sought up one day and then executed in civic life. No, their political and their social, social structure was something that God had revealed to them. It was something that God himself had given to them through his word. It was God who had raised up the priests and the prophets and the kings and given them as leadership over Israel for their blessing, dependent on the way that those leaders then would follow and obey God faithfully. For example, you can see one of the promises of blessings that were made to one of their kings, to King David, uh, the head of the Davidic line of kings, the famous line of kings for the people of Israel. At the very beginning uh, of his 
or um, uh, at the beginning of the Davidic line, this promise was made to him in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 13 by God. And it says this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You see, the promise here to the Davidic kings through David was that the Davidic line would be something that would continue forever in blessing. But there was a catch. Because obedience and loyalty to God, love for his word, these were the things that were supposed to characterize these kings and that were the condition of ongoing blessing through them. But what happened is that God's people turned away from God who gave them their kings, and they trusted in the kings themselves. They began to look to these kings for their security and for their life and for their flourishing, regardless of whether or not those kings were living in faithfulness to God and obedience to his word. They hoped in those kings for the life that only God could give. And so... We read in verse 20 that God disciplined them by removing their idols. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. This verse is reflecting on the way that King Zedekiah, at the time of the exile, he tried to escape the siege of Jerusalem, and he was captured and he was put to death. But did you see the way that they talked in this verse about this king, they describe him as the breath of our nostrils. And this funny and ancient way of describing the way that their life itself was in the life of the king. They say, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. They're saying, under him we shall live in prosperity and flourishing. They look to the king for their life. But the people also trusted not just in their kings, but in the religious leaders, in the priests and the prophets in an idolatrous way. And again, they ignored the teaching of the Bible that the priests and prophets must carefully obey God. And they began listening not to priests and to prophets who were faithful to the word of God, but to wicked priests and to lying prophets who turned away from God and his word and who even killed the prophets that God sent to warn his people about their sin. You can read about this in Jeremiah 21. It's just one example. And what happened? Well, God disciplined the people by removing their idols. In 4.13 to 15, you read this. This was for the sins of her prophets, the lying prophets, and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried to them. Away, away, do not touch. So they, these religious leaders, they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. And the third thing we see in this text that the people trusted in wrongly in an idolatrous way is that they made an idol out of God's blessings. How does that work? That might sound kind of funny to you. How can you make an idol out of God's blessings? Well, it's easy. You can begin to trust in God's gifts and not look to the giver. See, God had made incredible promises to his people far, below, far before Jerusalem fell. 
Because Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 28, he wrote God's promises of blessings for obedience if the people continued in faithfulness to God, but also he wrote about the curses for disobedience, which now, of course, in Lamentations we're reading about and how they happened to the people. But the blessings in this chapter are really incredible, and they go on and on in Deuteronomy 28, and basically they say that Israel would become an unconquerable force of prosperity and abundance and flourishing in this incredible way if only they listened to God, if only they obeyed him and stayed faithful to him. But what happened over time was this. As God's people began to experience God's blessings, they began to forget the God who had blessed them in the first place. And they trusted the blessing themselves. They no longer looked to God for life, but they took the blessings for granted. And they became optimistic even. And for them, the fact that they had become a successful and a prosperous kingdom that was blessed, that must mean surely that God was still pleased with them. After all, look at us. He loves us. We're so blessed. It's great. It's wonderful. All is well. And even as they grew more disobedient and idolatrous, and as wickedness was pervasive in their cities, they were blind to it. And they looked forward to the fulfillment of prophecies that spoke about something called the day of the Lord. And this is a day when God would visit his people. And they assumed, surely that must mean that we'll receive even more blessing for God, from God when he comes. This will be good for us. But there is one prophet named Amos who warned them. And he says, because of your sin and your idolatry, this will not be a good day for you. In Amos 5, verse 18, we read, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you desire the day of the Lord? Why would you have it come? It is darkness and not light. And in Lamentations 4, we see this as a day of the Lord comes, not in blessing, but in judgment. Though they continued in their sin and trusted in blessing and expected more blessing, God disciplined them by removing their idols. We read 4.11 say this, The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger. And he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. Friends, as I've been looking at this passage this week, I've, I've been praying about it. I've been reflecting in, in prayer to the Lord. I've been asking him, God, in, in what ways am I like your people? In what ways have I become idolatrous and blind to my sin? Father, in this year that's been difficult in so many ways, how are you disciplining me to turn me away from things that will not bring me life and to turn me back to you to have life. And I've realized something about myself. As I've prayed this prayer, I've realized I have a lot of idols. And like God's people, I trust in wealth and prosperity. I make an idol out of money. But it doesn't lead to my flourishing. More than once this year, I've been worried about the financial security of our country and of myself personally and what that means for me. And I've been afraid and I've become anxious. And actually at times I've even held back in generosity out of concern for myself. And all the while God is calling me to have life in him, 
to trust that he's the one who provides for me, to trust that he's my father, that the all-powerful sovereign God who owns every resource is the one who cares for my needs. Why should I be afraid? Like God's people, I often trust in leadership itself, not in the faithfulness of those leaders to God. And I, I get worried when I don't see the leaders that I desire or that I want in my life, whether in uh, church life or civic life, whether in provincial life or whether in the federal life of our country. But this worry about leadership, or this false trust in leadership, it doesn't lead to life and flourishing. It leads to preoccupation. You may have experienced this recently. It leads to anxiety and fear. And all the while, God, who is offering me life, who I should be trusting in for my life, he's calling me to trust that Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, is the ruler of the king's on earth. I'm secure. I can trust him. Why do I worry? And like God's people, I've realized that I also presume on God's kindness and his blessings. And I make an idol out of them. But even this doesn't bring me life. See, what happens is that it leads me to begin to trust in myself. I have done well in this area. And I, I think that it's about me versus about the blessings that God has poured out upon me. And I begin to grow anxious to maintain my blessings or to maintain maybe the, the veneer of blessedness before the eyes of others. I'm afraid of failing. I'm afraid of being exposed. I'm afraid of being seen as not having it all together. And all the while, God is calling me to trust him, to hope in him to be strong, not in my strength, but in his. Not in the gifts that I've received, but in the giver of every gift. And he even invites me to embrace weakness. Not to trust in the blessings, but to trust that God, though he take and remove blessings, that he's still the one who gives life. To cause me to trust and live by the power of his love and his spirit every moment of every day, regardless of my circumstances. And like the people of God, I also trust in my city. And some of the they trusted in Jerusalem, I trust in Vancouver. I make an idol out of it. I, I love the cafes and the restaurants and the culture of Vancouver. I love its beauty and I love its recreation. But like them, I have a problem because my idolatry and my love for the city, it begins to blind me. I don't see its sin. I don't mourn the deaths of the isolated and the grieving. I don't mourn that opioid addiction has killed far more than COVID this last year. I don't lament the children in our city who long for stable families to care for them and have none. I don't cry tears for the children aborted in our hospitals. I don't grieve for the homeless. I don't mourn over the loss of understanding of what a human being is and how we're to flourish as humanity, whether sexually or emotionally or spiritually or physically or any other way. I trust in a veneer of peace and prosperity in my idolatry of the city when wickedness is pervasive. And it doesn't lead me to life. It doesn't lead me to be a faithful witness for Jesus in this city. It leads me away from the God of life and his righteousness and his purposes for our flourishing. You see, friends, our idolatry, like Israel's idolatry, like God's people's idolatry, is pervasive. We aren't that different from the people in the book of Lamentations. Do we have reason then to hope? I think we do. 
As we conclude this morning, we must remember that even throughout the book of Lamentations, which is this deep and agonizing cry of pain, we see glimmers of hope. And in particular for us today in Lamentations 4, the author ends by turning to God in his lament and hoping in his character. In particular, by hoping that God is a God who is just in his character. And that might sound funny to you, right? Because isn't this author here and aren't the people here uh, experiencing this punishment for their sin because of God's justice? How would they hope in his justice for something future? What would that mean? How could they possibly be good news for them? Well, let me show you. You see, the author looks at his situation and remembers God's justice, and he was hopeful for two reasons. First, he took hope that the wicked nations would one day be punished. He takes hope that God is not a God who will allow evil to continue forever. In 4 verse 22, we read this, But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. See, this is a theme throughout the prophets. The people of God, they looked at their punishment for their sin, and they began wondering about the punishment of others. And all throughout the prophetic literature, you see these judgment oracles. And what was going on was they were saying this. They are saying, God, we get it. We sin, and we're being punished now. But what about all of those people? What about them and their wickedness and their sin? After all, haven't they sinned against you and also against us? When are you going to deal with that? When are you going to judge them? And here in, in his lament, in Lamentations 4, the author remembers that God is indeed a God of justice, and he takes hope that God, therefore, will not allow sin to go unpunished forever. He will judge. He will judge. He will make right. But second, in remembering God's justice, the author takes hope for another reason. He takes hope remembering that the judgment of God has limits. It has an end. He takes courage knowing that punishment from God will not overflow the banks that God has established for it. Look at chapter 4, verse 22. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. Friends, God will not cast off forever. His punishment has an end point and the author of Lamentations reflects on the rubble of Jerusalem, and he knows the punishment is over. And if punishment is over, then isn't it only a matter of time that God in his mercy and his grace will begin to restore according to his promise? Now, I do admit that, that this is only a glimmer of hope in a very heavy chapter. But one day, this glimmer of hope that says, the punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. She will keep you in exile no longer. One day that glimmer of hope would be eclipsed by a far greater word from Jesus. That glimmer of hope would be eclipsed by Jesus, who as he died, the righteous for the unrighteous cried out once and for all, it is finished. The punishment for sin is over. Redemption and salvation is accomplished. Because on a day far darker than the day Jerusalem fell, judgment was forever finished against human sin as the God-man himself, as Jesus Christ hung on the cross. See, the creator of humanity was dehumanized. The one from whom every blessing flows, he was cursed. The sustainer of life was killed. 
His blood was shed and his body was broken. And it was all for a reason. It was so that Jesus could say, it is finished. So that we could be forgiven, reconciled to God in his love. Lavished with every blessing that is within the power of Almighty God to pour out on his people forever. See, the words of Isaiah, they came true the day that Jesus hung on the cross. The words of Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What can finally and forever wash away our sin? It's not the destruction of Jerusalem. It's the destruction of the Son of God for us. As you friends, it is this justice of God poured out on Jesus that finally did something even more incredible than this. This judgment of God poured out on Jesus is what finally delivers us from a greater enemy than Edom or Babylon or Assyria. This punishment poured out on Jesus is what delivers us from the idolatry and the sin that holds our hearts captive in the first place. What can finally deal with our cold and dead hearts that are so hard to the life that God promises to give us? It's not punishment, it's grace. It's the love of God that is Jesus dying for our sins. It's Jesus giving for us. It's that God, in Romans 5, verse 8, shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the undeserved gift of God's love and blessing, which is poured out upon us through Jesus, that's what can capture our hearts. That's what I want to invite you, as you reflect on this text, to marvel at. To know that God would love you, somebody who deserves his wrath and his anger in the same way that Jerusalem experienced it but who has instead poured out his love and his blessing on you because of Jesus. That God himself would come and become human and suffer in your place that you could receive his blessings. Friends, as we reflect now and conclude, I want to invite you to take some time this week and ask God to show you how have you been turning away from him? How have you been looking for life and things that will only bring you death? How has God, maybe in this season, been disciplining you to turn you to himself? Won't you pray and cry out to him and ask him to lead you into life that is truly life? Won't you pray with me? Father, we want to thank you. We want to thank you that you are a good father. Lord, that even when we don't understand and we don't see all your purposes, we know that you are faithful. You are faithful even in your discipline, leading us away from things that would kill us and leading us to your life. God, help us to walk in your life. In Jesus' name, amen.